Bonjour tout le monde et bienvenue sur le Screen Test of Time. Je m'appelle Susan Raslin. I'm David Daw. <laughs> this is the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture in order from the very first award ceremony to someday the present year. I wasn't going to do all of that in French. One, because I assume most of our audience doesn't speak French. Two, because David, I don't think, does. And three, because my French is not that good. But there was a reason for that. And that is because this week's movie is the 1935 adaptation of Les Miserables. Yeah. Starring Frederick March and Charles Lawton as Jean Valjean and Inspector Javert. I gotta say, we said at the end of last week that this was going to be a disaster because Frederick March couldn't do Jean Valjean, that the movie was too short to pack in anything resembling the plot of Les Mis, and that Charles Lawton was going to be a terrible Javert. And to the movie's credit, only one of those three things is really true. (laughs) But to not the movie's credit, That one thing does totally derail the film. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm worried about this episode, David, I have to say, because, like, I'm kind of a giant Les Mis nerd. That's okay. I've only seen Les Mis a couple of times. I had to, like, open the Wikipedia page about the original novel to, like, refresh myself on the, like, back half of the story. Oh, okay, cool. So it'll balance out. Have you read the book? No. No, I never have. I've just seen, like, a live production of it and then one of the movies. But I don't think the most recent movie. I don't know. Is it the one with Claire Danes? I think maybe. And Liam Neeson is Jean Valjean? I think so. I think so. It did not leave much of an impression, and that sounds like casting that would not leave much of an impression. (laughs) (laughs) Ah. That's a that's a bird on on that. I mean, I agree. That was not a, it was not a great adaptation. So for people who are listening who are not familiar with the plot of Les Miserables, well, we still actually have to go through the plot of this movie because it's not exactly the plot of either the book or the musical. Because again, it's an hour and a half long. Well, an hour forty. You can't fit the whole story of Les Miserables in an hour 40, but they do a damn good job trying. <laughs> yeah, the corners they cut are smart. Yeah. We start off with the super weird, I don't know, again, I'm not like a Les Mis super fan, so maybe I'm wrong, but we start off with an indication of what is to come in this super Christy Les Mis with a gigantic crucifix in the background as Jean Valjean is being uh, sentenced to, God, what do they call it again? The galleys. Which is really weird because it was just jail. Like, they used the word galleys, but they didn't actually, like, put people on ships at that point in French history anymore. Yeah. <laughs> which apparently the uh, adapters were not aware of that it just meant you went to jail not that you were like a galley slave on a ship because they you know people sailed at this point more than they had ships that were operated by rowers but they did at least have that really good galley set so why chain yourself to historical accuracy (laughs) when you can chain yourself to a rowing bench exactly after a a brief super duper melodrama e opening that establishes the terrible injustice done to our hero Jean Valjean. 
which I'm saying dismissively only because I assume everyone knows this and not because like, oh yeah, sentenced for stealing bread. What a jerk off. To feed his starving sister and her children. Right. If I am making fun of it at all, it is because it is such an over-the-top miscarriage of justice. Anyway, we then get introduced to the movie's antagonist and main problem, Inspector Javert, played deeply confusingly by Charles Lawton. Oh, he's so bad. He's so- he, he- He is so miscast that I felt terrible for Charles Lawton, and I felt absolutely nothing for the character of Javert. Yeah. It's, it is, it's wild because like Charles Lawton knows enough to know that there is exactly one part of Javert's plot he is equipped to do, which is the very last thing Javert ever does. Which is kill himself because he can't deal with the fact that he lets Jean Valjean go. Oh my God, spoiler for people who are not familiar with the plot of Limits. Right. The thing that is wild is because that indecision, that crisis of conscience, is the only thing about Javert that Lawton can really sink his teeth into, he just plays every single scene like Javert is having a crisis of conscience. It's just that every time except for the last scene of the movie, he decides to fucking pull a Collins. And after doing a terrible, like... Sorry, I'm just really pissed at Suzanne Collins at the moment because of the day we're recording this. But after hemming and hawing about this crisis of conscience he's having, he does the absolute wrong thing consistently for the entire movie until the last scene. Yeah, I mean, the introduction that we have to him is totally different than what is in any of the other media I've ever seen about this. And this is, by the way, the 17th film adaptation of Les Miserables up to this point. I was going to say, already? Jesus. Yeah. Which is remarkable because I think the first one was like 1898. So they've been doing one like every two years, give or take, since people were able to make film. <laughs> <sighs> anyway, so the introduction of Javert is he is being interviewed to, I guess, like go from being a soldier to being a police sergeant or inspector or whatever he hasn't been recommended because his dad was a crook or something and his mom also was and he was born in jail and the guy his lip is quivering like he's about to burst into tears and i'm like this is not the hard ass that he should be at this point yeah it's such a weird choice because it immediately highlights why it doesn't really make sense that javert is so completely dedicated to the law above all and that puts you in this weird position where like it wants this to be the story of a deeply conflicted person, but like, it's not. Like, it's, it's, <laughs> he goes to such lengths for the entirety of the plot that it just doesn't make sense to play him that way. Also, why would he kill himself? Right. If like his whole life he's battled, he's had this internal battle between like justice and mercy then that's not going to blow his mind and completely destroy his identity for him to throw himself in the river. Yeah, it's it's no good. It's also that, well, I mean, we'll get to that last scene, but it's 
That whole last scene. I will say, at the very least, he's not a huge part of the movie. Yeah. By comparison, like, he shows up in every in every period of Jean Valjean's life. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that, too. But he's not, he's not a frequent character in the same way that Valjean is. No, and I will say the fact that he does appear so infrequently and that he is such a, like, drag on the movie does sort of work out in this way where Javert really does haunt the film. Every time you're like, oh god, but then Javert's gonna show up. In a way you don't necessarily in other productions. It's just for very different reasons. It's gonna show up and just suck. (laughs) But let's talk about the anachronistic galley set, because then we can kind of talk about one of the things that I think is really good about this movie, which is all of the design and cinematography. Mm, Yeah, agreed. Really right off the bat, just everything is lit so well. All of the sets are like, if you're going to do historical epic, do sets like this. The galleys are like, they're terrifying. There's also, there's a shot in there that is totally stolen for Full Metal Jacket. Like, I feel like Kubrick 100% ripped it off, where for some reason they all have to, like, get on the floor. (laughs) They have to, like, get down from their bunks and get on the floor, and the shot is, like, from one end of the room looking up this line of the prisoners lying in the floor. And it is totally the same shot of all of the soldiers having to drop and do push-ups when, what's the character's name? I'm blanking on it too, but I know who you're talking about. When he like eats a donut or something. When Vincent D'Onofrio's character, whatever his name is, (laughs) and he's like eating the donut and then they're all doing push-ups like right in front of and next to their bunks. And I was like, that, cool, right on. Cinema history, I'm watching it right now. It's a good scene, despite being totally anachronistic. And of course, Javert shows up. To establish why he's able to figure out who Jean Valjean is later, basically. And then we sort of skip ahead to Valjean being released from the galley and getting cheated by the unjust government again. Just get him coming and going. And he is turned away almost everywhere because of because he's a convicted felon. Well, just convicted, I guess. Yeah, I don't know that they had a distinction. Right, and if they did, stealing bread probably wasn't a felon. I don't know, man. I, I've been reading a lot of stuff lately about the first French Revolution, which was not that long before. And there were a lot of food riots and like... Oh, yeah. I mean, it might have been. <laughs> Fair. Um, but we then get to our second super Christy portion of the movie as we get to the priest the, who takes him in, uh, yeah. Bishop, yeah, who is like the one good and pure thing in the world. So the the character of the priest is always one that is kind of given short shrift in most adaptations. Definitely is in the musical. There's a lot about him in the book, but it's not necessarily about his interaction with. Valjean and he is great in this movie he is he's funny which is weird instead of just being like incredibly beatific and like the incarnation of Christ's mercy in France he has a really good sense of humor he makes jokes I'm like who is who is this guy why is he so rad Yes. And like in in when I talk about how that section is super Christy, you're right that it's less directly Christy. It is more that like 
Boy, everyone else in the nation of France seems to just suck balls, except for this one dude. <laughs> like, this one priest is the only rad human being in France. I'm actually not going to argue with you on that, because, uh, yeah, totally. There's a joke that he makes at one point where, so he has like a cook or something who is a who's a woman, and she's afraid of Valjean because he's a paroled convict, and... Valjean says to the priest, you know, she thinks I'm going to kill you in the night. How do you know I'm not going to? And the priest is like, how do you know I'm not going to kill you? (laughs) Which is like not a thing that the priest in most adaptations of this would ever say. He would be much more like, oh, because, you know, I trusted God's love or something like that. (laughs) Yeah. Valjean steals from the guy despite his charity, gets caught, but the bishop says he actually gave Valjean the plates that he stole, but also insists that he takes two silver candlesticks. Right? They're silver, right? Yep. And it sends him on his way. He leans down on the side of the road and considers the charity shown to him as choral music swells, and then we get the It's hol- literally Ave Maria. Yeah. <laughs> And then we get a giant title card that says in all caps, Thus ends the first chapter of the life of Jean Valjean. (laughs) Which is my favorite thing, because it doesn't, it's not like it corresponds to the end of book one of Les Mis or anything. It's just the movie announcing, and now we are going to act two. You can do this with just putting the date stamp in the next scene. You don't need to, like, (laughs) in case you were wondering, on to act two. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, I've got to be honest, outside of the, like, one of the reasons that was so hilarious to me is that outside of the cinematography, the movie really wasn't clicking for me yet. And I think it's in the second act that both Frederick March's performance and the sort of pace of events really locks into a rhythm that I think makes the movie way better. I really sort of started to get interested and think like, oh, now this could be not a disaster as we kind of get into the second chapter of the life of Jean Valjean. (laughs) I have to say, Frederick March apparently had 11 different makeup looks in this movie, makeup and hair looks, because, you know, he doesn't have to look like a lot of ages of a particular dude, but he pulls it off so much in just the acting, because we had, like, in Cavalcade and in, oh, what was the other one? Cimarron. We had that beginnings of, like, same actor is playing a character from, like, relatively young adult until well into their 60s. And, like, I didn't fucking buy it. And I didn't think Frederick March could pull off Jean Valjean because he's, like, a pretty thin and handsome dude. And I I kind of fell in love with Frederick March this week. He's kind of amazing. Like, he can disappear into any role. He really can do it. Yeah, if anything, my, like, my objections, which are relatively small to Frederick March's performance is that when he kind of disappears almost too much into some of Valjean's more, like, hard-scrabble desperate moments, which is a re- kind of a ridiculous criticism, and, like, if I have to pick that... He acts too well. <laughs> right. 
especially when up against like Lawton. Yeah, that's an absurd thing to say. But just like there were a couple of moments with Frederick March where I was like, wow, really, really going for it, huh? Yeah, there is kind of a feeling of, you know, maybe they don't want you to stay at the end, not because you're a convict, but because, dude, you look fucking gross. Like, go jump in a river and like clean off. (laughs) Right. And like, I think... I think that there's there's that and then there's also this thing of like, I don't know, there's this sort of paradoxical thing of like, it is impossible to go too big for Les Mis and so I'm always watching out for it for some stupid reason. <laughs> there is always this like, did it, did someone do it? Did somebody finally play Les Mis as too much of a melodrama? <laughs> and like, the answer is no, of course they didn't. That's absurd. But like... Frederick March inches up to it a couple of times. Yeah, yeah, I would say that. Anyway, so thus begins the second chapter of Jean Valjean's life, where he is open to factory and all of his workers love him. And apparently the city loves him so much that they just come and say like, hey, we've decided you're going to be the mayor. And he's like, oh, I, but I've only lived in this town for five years. Certainly somebody is more deserving. And they're like, no, come on, we'll go to the factory floor and prove it. Then they announce to all of his workers, like, we have made him the mayor and everyone cheers. And I'm kind of like, how does that prove anything? Because at any company, if people were like, hey, your boss has become the mayor, you would do that (laughs) because it's expected of you. That's not voting. Yeah, it definitely did see, like, I see him... (laughs) Like, a, wait, is that it? Did he just get, they don't, is there like an election or anything? <laughs> um, but it is, though, also indicative of the, like, ruthless efficiency to get through the plot that starts showing up around now. Yeah, because the first chapter is really long. It's like 20 minutes of a 100-minute movie. Yeah. And I was like, I mean, they're dedicating 20% of this film to the part that takes like 10 minutes in a two-and-a-half-hour musical. I genuinely thought for a little while, like right around this point in the movie that we're talking about, are we just doing book one? Like, are, are we going to just end at the end of book one? And that's the whole movie? Because at the pace it was going, that was about where you were going to end up. Yeah. But then it just, like, speed runs about 2,000 pages of Les Mis. So Fontaine works at the factory. She's, like, a pretty young woman who gets fired and is all upset because she has a kid that she is boarding with a couple who run a tavern. And then this is the part where... The Haze Code comes very close to ruining this movie because Fontaine's, the father of her child, is just dead. So it's like, oh yeah, my husband is dead. And I think they specifically say like, where is your husband? And she says he's dead. Fontaine didn't ever marry her child's father. In the movie, she doesn't become a prostitute at all. She doesn't sell her hair. She doesn't sell her teeth. I mean, she doesn't sell her teeth in the musical, but she does in the book, which is really heartbreaking. So it's kind of like she gets fired from her job and then attacks the guy who fired her. It's just, it's kind of weird. And it's it's kind of like the Hayes Code fucked up that part because... 
uh, I would agree, but I also think it like because there's so much business around that and so much business around like who has custody of Cosette, when and why and where. They kind of fix it with some other deviations from the book, but it, it definitely feels like something where the first script went in and the Hayes Code was like, oh, no, oh, no, you cannot have a bastard child. And her mother like becomes a hooker in order to support her. Nope. Nuh-uh. <laughs> yeah. I, I absolutely think it's a Hayes Code thing, but I also think it is why this movie is less than two hours long. That's true. You save about a half hour with the Bowdlerized version of her backstory and Cosette's backstory that you get in this movie. So yeah, she shows up at the office and like yells at him for firing her. And of course- then Javert descends to arrest her. <laughs> yeah. And sucks a lot. <laughs> and Valjean is like, well, I'm not pressing charges. And Javert is like, well, it doesn't matter because the law says that they're pressing charges. <laughs> okay, fine. And then Valjean just like picks her up because she faints because she has the the tragic disease of... We need her to die for the plot. Yeah. And like rushes out or whatever and takes her to his house and has his housekeeper take care of her and then rides off in a carriage to go and get Cosette, which is another like major deviation from the story because that doesn't happen yet. And certainly not while Fontaine is alive. But there's actually something about that change that was really heart wrenching <laughs> because Cosette comes back and like hugs her mom who's you know, sick and dying on a bed and then like lives with Valjean for like a couple weeks. Yeah. The, is it like a period of time? The timeline there is really unclear because like a lot of stuff happens in there. That's the period where the false Valjean is arrested and it ends up saving Valjean because Javert was on to him. But then Valjean, being a man of conscience, has to go to Paris and reveal that he is, in fact, Jean Valjean. All of that stuff happens. I think the does the uh, sort of cart rescue happen before or after the Cosette stuff? After he gets Cosette. The cart rescue happens on the way to get Cosette. Right. Where this guy has been crushed. Valjean uses his back as a jack to get the cart off of this guy. And that's when Javert suspects him as he must have been on the galleys. So it seems like it's like a while that they live together. Because also Cosette is really attached to uh, Valjean by the time we get to the tragic running away part where they have to go live in a convent because Javert is just going to destroy Cosette and Fantine's life out of deference to the law and also just because he's a prick. But also Fantine dies, so it's okay. Right, except that whole thing is weird. There's a lot of deviations there and it's very strange, but it mostly works. Yeah, I want to talk about the trial scene, actually. Go ahead. I thought it was really, really well done. It's part of what is kind of an overarching theme of this film, which is like prison reform, which is fascinating to me because that's not in... That's like not in the book and it's not in the musical and it's not in any other adaptation that I've seen. You know, they pick up this guy and they accuse him of being Jean Valjean and he's like not very well educated. And it's very clear that they are like just going to pin it on this guy to like get it over with. And they bring in people who were in the galleys with Valjean to say that, yeah, that's that's definitely him. 
it's so obvious that they are being made to do this or maybe paid off or have been promised that they won't have to serve as much time. It's really, really difficult to watch this poor guy who is like essentially illiterate and poor and has been his whole life get railroaded. They make it really uncomfortable. And it's, I think it's a really effective scene. Yeah, I think it's great. It's also, I think it's probably Frederick March's best scene in the movie. Mm. That's debatable, but like it it was my favorite. Uh, I think he does a really good job there. He kind of ends up doing a Mr. Smith Goes to Washington thing with it. I haven't seen it, so I don't know that reference. There's just something about the way he kind of swings his arms around and there's sort of something manic about his confession that I really like uh, and that reminds me of that movie. Yeah, and where he goes through like all of the people that they've brought in to be witnesses and he's like, no, I know this about you. And then he says something about one guy has like a tattoo or something and he like pulls up his sleeve to show it after he said what it will be and where it is. The way that he talks to them too is really kind because he kind of checks in with them. <laughs> like, hey, how how have you been, Pierre or whatever the hell their names are because that's the first French name I could think of. <laughs> he's a very kind person and he pulls it off without being like overly saintly you know yeah i think there's a lot of nuance to his performance i think the the like no i guess there's nuance in the script too it just bothers me because it's a very weird there's that weird deviation where he almost doesn't go do it and then one of the candlesticks falls i think that's it i haven't seen that before anyway they make a big thing of like, he almost backs out and just lets the guy get convicted instead of riding to Paris. But then one of the candlesticks falls off the mantle and he remembers the Christian act of charity that was done for him and that he must try and live up to, which is also very well performed and kind of a nice, subtle way to do some stuff that's... Mm-hmm. There's no 24601 song. <laughs> Yeah, that is, I think, sort of described more directly in the action in other productions. So then he has to get Cosette and run away, I guess. Yeah. Actually, his whole plan initially is that he is going to just go to jail and that Cosette will stay with Fontaine and then he goes to visit Fontaine and give her money. And that's when Javert shows up and Fontaine has been like living in a convent, having nuns take care of her. And he tries to give her money and Javert is like, well, you can't because we have to prove that that money wasn't stolen before you can turn that money over and then she dies and Valjean is like she died because of you your very presence killed her yeah (laughs) and I gotta say Lawton is playing such a shitty Javert that I can't disagree with that yeah it's it's I think this is another moment where I kind of got to give it to Frederick March because I think there's a real leap of logic in the switch from I guess I will just go willingly to jail to actually fuck that. Cosette, come with me. We're going to a monastery. (laughs) And in the books, that's because actually a whole bunch of stuff happens there that doesn't happen in this movie. And Frederick March kind of makes that switch read as kind of an irrational choice in a way that actually works for the movie rather than against it. And then thus ends the second chapter of the life of Jean Valjean, (laughs) because we have our monastery time skip where we go from young Cosette to like early 20s Cosette. 
who's not supposed to be in her early 20s, but is played by an actress who is. Right. They go to this, is it a monastery or is it a convent? It's a a convent. It's just a convent. Yeah. Where he used to donate a bunch of money when he was pretending to be this other person who ended up being the mayor. And he writes a letter from his other alias saying, you know, take on this guy and his daughter and let them live with you. That's all that I ask. And so he gets this job as the gardener, and then, you know, I don't remember why it is that they have to leave and go to Paris. I mean, I know that it's Javert's, like, sniffing around again, but... Well, they don't have to leave is the weird thing. They do, in the movie at least. I think, again, from the Wikipedia page, in the novel, there's apparently a big reason. Yeah. But instead, it just seems like the plan was hide out in this convent for five years to throw Javert off the trail and then emerge back into public life with new aliases. I guess like once Cosette graduates. Yeah. Because she's not going to become a nun. Right. They go just out into the world and then we get to Marius and the other not revolutionaries. I want to stress again, (laughs) we're not revolutionaries. Uh, Yeah, that's a... That's such a weird choice. I mean, that must be Hayes Code 2, right? Yeah, I assume. But it does end up making Marius weirdly more progressive, because instead he's just this firebrand prison reform advocate. (laughs) Yeah, which is kind of cool. And there's no Angelos. Like, Marius is the head of that group of activists. Yeah. Though still is, despite that, a totally fucking simpering soft boy I can't stand, (laughs) like he is in literally every other work (laughs) from this source material. Right. And it actually makes that a little bit weirder when the plot demands that he be an extremely soft boy. After his introduction scene and the fact that he's this like leader of a group of student radicals. Yeah, I don't buy it. There is no way that soft boy is a leader of student radicals. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I kind of go with that on it, my head canon is Eponine is actually doing all the work. I'm there for that. I'm totally there for that. I would be there for that in any adaptation. <laughs> uh, because I stand Eponine very hard. But. <laughs> She's great in this, by the way, and- She is! Totally different from any Eponine ever. And Frances Drake that plays her is great, too. Yeah, but there's a weird thing in that scene. So they're, like, riding along in a carriage, and there's some, you know, student radicals talking to people in the park and handing out pamphlets. And Cosette is like, can we stop and listen to them? Which is in that single request for one thing at all gives her a thousand times more agency than any other Cosette ever. (laughs) So they do stop. And then Marius comes over and is like giving them pamphlets and saying, we're not revolutionaries. We just think that we're not even against law and order. We just want for these horrible sentences to be overturned. But it's funny to me that his way of saying like, we're not revolutionaries is we're students. We're law students. And I'm like, do you know who, like, Robespierre and Danton (laughs) and the rest of them were? They were fucking, they were fucking lawyers who were, like, in their 20s. (laughs) The other thing, the thing that I love about that is that that scene is also, although she isn't named yet, our introduction to Eponine. And there's this great bit of business Where she is like, if you're going to flirt with this bitch in a carriage, give me some of the extra flyers. Like, I'm I'm (laughs) just like, come on. And 
just like wordlessly grabs another stack of pamphlets out of his free hand and wanders away. And it's great. Yeah, she she is really great. It's weird that they make her like the secretary to Marius, who is the leader of these prison reform advocates. Like, oh, okay, they they need a secretary? Like, they're very, very organized to have their headquarters in what looks like a bar. (laughs) Yeah, I've got to say the, like, last 30 minutes or so, because we're getting to another nexus of trying to condense down, like, way, way, way too much of Les Mis into a small period of time uh, and making a lot of changes because of it. Mm -hmm. There's just a lot of stuff that's, I think, really confusing in the third act. Oh, yeah, I agree. And, like, what Valjean's plan is at any given moment. uh, Once, uh, Spoiler alert, Marius and Cosette fall in love. And they're going to tell Valjean and get married when Javert shows up and ruins everything on a number of levels. <laughs> yep. In universe and in, in the meta story. <laughs> yeah. And then we just get to the last, like, two and a half books of Les Mis, just all thrown together into one big sequence where they immediately go back to their home and try, and they're going to flee to England. Cosette tells Valjean about Marius and how she has to stay because she loves him, right? Yeah. It's ambiguous what she hopes for. And Valjean is like, ah, fine, screw it. I'll go get your boyfriend. And runs out into the riot that has suddenly erupted. Not a revolution. It is a protest that turned into a riot. It is not a revolution. We want to make this very clear. And it's also an extremely that escalated quickly riot. (laughs) It's set up about three minutes before there's a huge riot. Somebody's like, hey, Marius, you want to riot on Saturday? And he's like, huh? What? I've got a girlfriend. I'm not listening. (laughs) And then there's a riot. And like... Before he heads out into this, though, there is a really bizarre and uncomfortable scene that happens between Valjean and Cosette that is like, is this, are they, does he have a problem with this? Because he thought that he was like raising her from a seven-year-old into the woman he would marry? Yeah, it, uh, again, I kind of chucked it up to trying to condense too much of the novel down into one scene, but like- I did too, but until- (laughs) But it definitely plays that way. Well, apparently the studio head, Daryl Zanuck, is quoted concerning his views of the story in the UCLA Theater Arts Library, quote- The romance between Jean Valjean and Cosette is the most important element of the story and should be developed. Wait, hold up. What? Yeah. yeah, yeah. What? Let let me finish. (laughs) His feeling for her when he first takes her is one of attachment. This later develops into devotion and culminates in her being his lifeblood. By treating it this way, the scene where he finally gives her up will absolutely slaughter audiences. This treatment will strike a human note in the picture and make it something much more important than just a finely conceived melodrama. End quote. The what between Jean Valjean and Cosette? Yeah. I, uh, I, what? The, the what? How do you, I just got done reading an AV Club article that reminded me of all the terrible Superman pitches that studios did in the 90s. And that were like, (laughs) 
Brainiac's gotta fight a bear and have a wacky robot sidekick. And, like, even with that as, as like, a primer, I cannot believe a studio had said something that that nuts. And so totally fucking wrong-headed. Yeah. That relationship is absolutely father-daughter and has nothing of that in it. And the tragedy of him leaving her so that she could be happy is not that, like, he lost the one girl in his life he had planned to be with forever in a romantic relationship. It's that because of his being a convict and not being able to, like, ever really trust anyone outside of their home, his daughter is his whole life. So without her, he has no one. Yeah. And, like, the other thing that makes that so weird is I was going to start talking about how then Eponine shows up and immediately becomes this weird de facto, like, romantic heroine sidekick for Valjean for the rest of the movie. And that they have this weird romantic energy going on. Which, like, again, I kind of fell in love with Frederick March in this movie, and so I understand it, but it's weird because... Well, one thing it made me realize how weird it is in Les Mis that this is a man who goes his entire life and never has a partner at all. That's kind of weird. He's very much made into this totally asexual saint and like, okay, fine. That is weird. Yeah. And I think it's one of those things that like, it's only when Wiley Coyote looks down, like, if you don't make Valjean a sexualized figure, you kind of don't notice how weird it is that he has, like, no sexual or romantic interest at all for the entirety of Les Mis. Yeah, but then you st- start inserting it implicitly in this adaptation, and you're like, one, that's weird, and two, Whoa, also it's weird in other contexts where this doesn't happen. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, Eponine shows up with a letter from, or not a letter, it's just a message that he loves Cosette or whatever, and then has this like big dramatic confession about how she loves him to Valjean because apparently she senses that he's going to understand because he's going through the same thing. We've got 15 minutes left in this movie. Go, 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 go. (laughs) And then he runs out into the street to save Marius. And he does save Marius, and there's no confusion about it on Marius's part, which is a whole shit ton of the last third of Les Mis, usually. Right. And Javert... (laughs) Javert pulls a... Like... Actually, that's the one scene where I think Lawton is brilliant casting, is when the students are like, Hey, you a cop? And Javert's like, yeah, yeah, I'm a fucking cop. <laughs> Hell yeah, cops. <laughs> and... <laughs> I, I think they're actually like, are you a spy? And he's like, I might be a spy, but I'm definitely a cop. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, okay. Well, <laughs> you are you are like the worst undercover yeah. agent of all time. But he then gets he's gets rescued by Valjean from the angry mob and you know thus begins his nervous breakdown that actually began an hour and 20 minutes earlier in the movie <laughs> yep and then he goes back and there's this very weird way to do this scene right at the end of the movie where 
Valjean agrees to leave with Javert if Cosette and Marius are left alone, and then proceeds to pretend like he is just going to go to England without them, which was their plan before she talked about how she was in love with Marius. And the thing that is so weird about that scene is I spent the entirety of it going, did Cosette figure this out? Like, she knows this is him lying, right? Because everyone's acting like they all know this is a lie. But if they do know it's a lie, then why are they not dropping the act? And if they don't know it's a lie, then isn't this huge thing about how you must always keep the silver candlesticks with you kind of a tell? Like... (laughs) it's it's here's my most cherished possession i'm not taking it with me though why don't you hold on to it in case you know england is really wet they're just gonna tarnish right and like england becomes this transparent metaphor for death and for the fact that they will never see him again but everyone sort of acts like oh yeah we know what we're really talking about here but then they don't like it does it's It's weird. It's totally weird. And also weird is after that is done, Valjean steps outside to face his fate and finds that Javert's just kind of wandered off and thrown himself into uh, the river. He trips over the handcuffs, or not trips over them, but he like sees them lying on the doorstep and is like, oh, well, he left. I better go run after him and like figure out what's going on. Which I would not have done that. I would have been like, fuck yeah, I'm free. (laughs) Right. And like the other thing that's weird is that after he goes and investigates and finds that Javert has committed suicide, the movie just ends. And so presumably the very first thing that happens in universe as we cut to the end title card is Valjean going, fuck yeah, I'm free. (laughs) Yeah. And then like walking back in and being like, you know what? I thought about it. I just uh, the food, and I don't. I don't even know anybody there. Do I even speak English? Like, maybe I'll just stay with you guys. Yeah. Hey, Marius, your friend Eponine's kind of cute. What's uh, what's her deal? <laughs> and then they have that classic double wedding that got cut for time. <laughs> um, and now we have made this into a Shakespeare comedy. <laughs> Yeah, but then the yeah, then the movie just ends without any tragic death for Valjean. And we in fact get rid of all of the business with Marius ever not trusting or disliking him. Yep. Uh which I again I actually think is a pretty good cut if you're gonna cut a bunch of stuff. Yeah. But does create this weird thing where it's just like so they just live happily ever after is the end of Les Mis? <laughs> The cop throws himself in a lake. The cop literally goes and jumps in a lake. (laughs) Well, he jumps in the Seine. It's a river. Right. (laughs) And then, and then our heroes live happily ever after. You know, the classic end of Les Mis. (laughs) This is totally that, like, putting a happy ending on King Lear thing. Totally. And, like, I will say, it, it kind of, it plays. Yeah, I don't, I don't hate it. Yeah. A big part of it is that because this movie's sole focus is Valjean in a way that neither the book nor the musical nor really most of the adaptations ever are, it's great because you're like, oh good, the guy that we've been following the whole time is free and is okay. And the guy that we hate because 
he's horrible and also because his performance is dizzyingly bad. <laughs> Just walked into the sea. <laughs> I love this movie. <laughs> yeah. Um. So speaking of, should we rate this film? Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. I'm going to go high and I'm going to give this movie a seven. I was going to give it a seven too. Yeah. With really, like, the major deduction is just Charles Lawton being horribly miscast. If they cast almost anyone else, if they cast that guy, the 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 Gene Wilder lookalike from David Copperfield as Javert. Oh, well, that guy can play fucking anything. Right, exactly. But, like, <laughs> if, if they cast... Oh, what the hell is that guy's name? Oh, Roland Young. Yes. Yeah, Roland Young would have totally killed it. Yeah. But also that's because there is literally no part that man cannot play. Right. I'm, I'm convinced. I'm trying to think of someone else who would actually be bad casting for Javert, who would, like, do a better job. Claudette Colbert would be better. Oh, Claudette Colbert. But again, Claudette Colbert can play anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, but Claudette Colbert can only play Charming. Wallace Beery. Wh- there. Even if they cast Wallace Beery and he did just a barely serviceable job as Javert, I'd be going like, this is like a nine. Why did we, like, why didn't this win Best Picture? Uh, now I'm just imagining Wallace Beery as Javert because all of the elegance of Javert is now totally gone. He's just like yeah. a tough beat cop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who's a total thug and like beats up people. Like that's Wallace Beery's Javert. Yeah. Which, to be fair is better than fucking Charles Lawton's Javert, which is like whiny, simpering piece of shit on the verge of tears at every moment. Very sorry he has to arrest you. Right. But also weirdly proud of it. Like it doesn't make, it doesn't, play it just doesn't play he's tortured throughout the whole film and it's like if he were that conflicted he'd just fucking get another job he'd be like oh well you know maybe i'll just be a farmer or uh, go to work in dude's factory right and like texturally it just doesn't work because his like one character quality is this fanatical devotion to the law. And so going, uh, but also he has reservations about it constantly, is like, no, he doesn't. He definitely doesn't. Like, that's... He spends all of his time not having reservations about it when other normal people would. Right, right. His whole, like, emotional breakdown that results in him killing himself. It's just Tuesday. Yeah. Like... (laughs) I mean, I guess he kind of plays him as a guy who suffers from, like, really clear chemical imbalance depression. So, like, yeah, he commits suicide because that's what happens when you live in 19th century France and have no access to, like, treatment or support or or medication for that. But, like, that, that, who, that doesn't read. Oh, that's the other thing I wanted to bring up about Javert's suicide in this thing is that you spend the whole movie thinking like well at least lawton can make a meal out of like his decision to commit suicide you don't even see it like you don't even see he just kind of goes like well and like jumps into the river like there's not a you don't even see you don't even see his him above the waist they just show his like legs on the edge of the river and then just like step step splash the end yeah it's extremely strange it is the one thing that really drags this movie down. I'm also taking off, like, one point, let's say, for the weird shit 
in that one scene between Valjean and Cosette. Yeah, just kind of like that and miscellaneous haze code shenanigans. Yeah. I think also dropped the grade down a little bit. But they did, I mean, like you said with the Fontaine part of the haze code shenanigans, they do manage to actually work that in a way that it ends up being very effective. Having a huge background in Les Mis and being a total fucking Les Mis nerd, the idea of Cosette getting to hug her mother one last time made me cry. And there's nothing about that scene if you haven't, like, immersed yourself in this work that would make you cry. It's just she goes and hugs her mom who is lying down and ill or whatever but it's, like, not a big moment. It's, like, ten seconds, five seconds of screen time. Yeah. Here's the thing. I kind of had a grade ready, but as we get to should you watch this movie... I hadn't really considered it up to now because sort of in my head, I went like, this isn't the best Les Mis. So like, no, but also like, again, maybe it's just that we've had a run of really bad to mediocre films for a couple of weeks. (laughs) But like, honestly, like, this is not a waste of your time. I've seen three film adaptations of Les Mis. I've seen this one. I've seen the one with Liam Neeson as Valjean. And I've seen the most recent one, which was the film version of the musical. Right. This is the best of them all. Like, far and away the best of them all. All right. It's not as, like, true to the book, but it is, it's, it's good. And again, it's a, it's a hundred and forty, or no, it's a hundred minutes long. I keep doing that. It's an hour and forty minutes. Or a hundred minutes long. There is apparently a French TV miniseries of it that I haven't seen that people say is quite good with John Malkovich as Javert. Oh, right. But Gerard Depardieu is Jean Valjean, and I don't know if I buy it. Yeah. There is no way to make Gerard Depardieu a totally sexless saint. Yeah. And Charlotte Gainsbourg is Fontaine, which, like, that plays for me, but am I going to watch a six-hour French TV miniseries? Probably not. Fair. Yeah, I think I'm coming down on, like, watch this. Watch this movie. Yeah. Also, if you're a Les Mis nerd and you're a completist, <laughs> you should do you, it. You have watched this movie. You have watched this movie and uh, and haven't even listened to this podcast because you've already seen it. Yeah, I would say it's totally worth your time. Is it, like, a must-see? No, but... It- I mean, we're we're coming up on a year of watching these movies. Actually, next week will be a year. And Frederick March is just so damn good. He's kind of the MVP of Screen Test of Time for the first year, in my opinion. Uh, well, Claudette Colbert. With Claudette Colbert as the, you know, well, you have to you have to split them up by gender. Right, of course, because this is an Academy Awards <laughs> podcast. Yeah, what are they going to do with, like, it's totally acceptable and normal for people to be (laughs) non-binary? Like, in the future, they're going to have, like, a non-binary category? (laughs) Boy, I... (laughs) The number of... And the the award for Best NB Supporting Actor goes to... I hope I live that long. Uh, Me too. But it's also, like, God, the amount of times the Academy will screw that up before... Yeah, that's that's true. So for next week, for our for our anniversary episode, da, 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 we are watching The Informer, which doesn't look that exciting for a thing to like celebrate for doing this for a year. But it is our 52nd episode, so that's just the way the cookie crumbles. Yeah. Maybe we'll say that like our anniversary episode is the 53rd episode. Well, wh- what are we watching then? 
Well, that's fair, because we're watching Alice Adams, but that one at least has Katherine Hepburn in top billing again. <laughs> Which does not guarantee that I'm going to like the movie. No, that's fair. In any case, tune in next week when we watch a movie about the IRA. Yep. I have no feelings about this movie one way or another yet. Yeah. Until then... Thus ends the podcast of our Les Mis 1935 rewatch. Uh, yeah. Or... C'était un film. Uh, no, c'était un film. Nice. Yes. Bye, everybody. Au revoir.